Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the wake of tragedies, either natural disasters or man-made tragedies, and we've had our our share of both of those lately, there's an expression that has become both common and also much ridiculed. And you'll hear this on the news, you'll hear politicians, you'll hear uh, actors and actresses and famous people saying this, our thoughts and prayers are with you, or our thoughts and prayers are with them, or whatever. And um, it's, it's been much ridiculed because, not because people don't believe in thinking or in praying, but because it sounds so insincere. Um, and, and, and it's taken sometimes, whether rightly or wrongly, to be an excuse for inaction. Well, our thoughts and prayers are with you, but we're not really going to do anything to help you. Uh, and that's kind of how it comes across many times, which has become uh, rather rather ridiculed uh, as, a, as a response to, to tragedies. Um, sounding pious while not doing anything to, to help human suffering. That's how it comes across. Among Christians, there is a tendency to do a couple of things. It's interesting that we do a couple of things with regard to thoughts and prayers. We think about each other rather frequently, and we pray for each other rather frequently, but we not only do that, I don't know if you've noticed, but we also tell each other that we are thinking about each other, and we tell each other that we are praying for each other. Now, that may sometimes be insincere. It may be, in fact, saying, well, I'm thinking about you and praying for you, but I'm not really doing anything for you, even though I know you have needs. It may sometimes be like that, but I think in most cases, it is a sincere expression of of love, because we do believe in thinking about each other, and we do believe in praying, and we do believe that God hears prayers and answers prayers, and so we tell people not only that we are praying for them, but sometimes we tell them what we are praying for them as well. Now, this is not something we've made up. There's actually biblical precedent, not only for praying for each other, but for telling people that we are praying for them and what we are praying for. For them, And that's exactly what we have in this section. This is not exactly a prayer. It's a prayer report. Paul is reporting his prayers for the Ephesians. And you find him doing this rather frequently, talking about what he prays that he prays and what he prays for the people to whom he's writing. Now, this is typical of Paul. What we've been looking at the last three weeks was not typical of Paul. 
usually there is the initial greeting in Paul's letters, and then there is the prayer report right away. I give thanks for you, I pray for you. But here we had this this interlude, this glorious interlude of verses 3 to 14, where Paul praises God for all the Holy Spirit blessings we have in the Father or from the Father, in the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. Now, after that long interlude of praise, now he gets back to more more typical Paul of the prayer report, his custom of reporting, his constant thanksgiving, and his constant prayer. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is typical Paul language. Now, um, some look at this and say, why did Paul have to hear about their faith and their love? Didn't Paul live among them between two and three years? Well, yes, he did, but he was gone for seven years after his time there uh, before he wrote this letter. And so how did Paul know about them? Well, he knew about them because he heard about them. We will have been gone from our church in Guadalajara for about six years come July. And how do we know how they're doing? Well, we know them intimately, but we know how they're doing now because we've heard of them. So this is not impersonal. He's not talking about a church he doesn't know. He's talking about a church from which he's been separated for a number of years. And what did he hear about them? It was a very encouraging report. Some churches he didn't hear such great reports, but of the Ephesians and probably the region of Asia, he heard a good report. And it was about two things. It was about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Their faith and their love. And this is a really good summary of the Christian life, isn't it? Faith in the Lord Jesus expressed in love for all believers, all the holy ones. And actually, this is, this is the outline of the letter of the Ephesians, or to the Ephesians. The first three chapters are about faith, things to believe, things that we believe. And then there's a transition in chapter 4, and from chapter 4 to chapter 6, it's about things to do and particularly how we are to love one another. So here we have an outline, a very simple outline of the Christian faith. Uh, We have theology, things to believe, doctrine, truth, and we also have ethics, the way we live our lives. And we also have, very conveniently, this is what Ephesians breaks down to in two sections. Now, Paul's response was ceaselessly to give thanks for them. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my Prayers. And here in verse 16, there is a transition, which is a natural transition for prayers, isn't it? We, we begin giving thanks, and then we find ourselves doing what? Praying for. We give thanks for a person, and then very, very naturally, we, we morph into petition for them. And that's what he does here in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And, there, and then the rest of this, this uh, section is the content of the kind of things Paul prays for the Ephesians. Now, in fact, all through these chapters, verses 1 to 3, or chapters 1 to 3, Paul kind of moves in and out of a prayer mode. He moves between praying and or reporting his prayers and instructing. And it's, it's a very natural movement between I'm praying for you this, I bow my knees before the Father, I ask this, and then there's sections of instruction all through chapters 1 to 3. But his prayer reports are actually also very instructive, aren't they? And, and what's he doing here? Why does he tell us at length what he's praying 
Well, it looks like for a couple of reasons. He teaches truth, and we will see deep truth in, in his prayer report. And he also teaches us how to pray. If you don't know how to pray, just pick out sections like this and, and pray this. Just, just pray this for, for believers. If you don't know what to pray for me, please take verses 17 to 23 and just pray these for me. I would be very, very thankful if you would do that. This is the kind of instruction we have here, the, the truths that are contained, but also it's an example of how to pray for one another. And what does he ask? What does he ask? He asks for knowledge, for knowledge. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. A complicated sentence, but he's praying basically for knowledge that they would know. And he prayed here to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory or the glorious Father. Now, that's a common expression that we find, but it's actually very rich. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That points to the fact that, that Jesus is a human and he has a God. He has the God as his God. And then it calls him uh, the God and Father. Well, that he is the Father uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that gestures at his, his divine nature. And then it calls him Lord, which confirms the, the idea that he is the he is true God. And so in this expression, it's very rich. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus of Nazareth is a human and he worships God. Uh, the Lord of uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal son of the Father. And he is the Lord Jesus and he is the anointed one. So this is a very rich expression. And in terms of prayer, it reminds us of the fact that our our entrance to God, our way of approaching God is through Jesus Christ. Um, we, we dare not, we ought not go to God without an intermediary. And God has provided the intermediary who is God and who is human. So he is, he is the one who can connect us to God. He is the one who, who was born as a man, lived, died, and rose from the dead. He is the one in, in whom we go to the Lord uh, asking for our petitions. And so this is very instructive. And then to round out the reference to the Trinity, he prayed that the Father would give the Spirit. The Father of glory, the Lord of our, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now this expression, um, here in our version, our translation, and most of them say something like this, the Spirit, capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit. I think that's correct. However, the, the expression simply says, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So what justification do we have for taking a spirit and turning it into the spirit, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, the justification is the context here. He's the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So which spirit is it that is the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Who is the spirit who communicates God's truth to us? Well, then there's only one candidate, right? It is the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something here. This is, this is quite remarkable because we have seen many references to the Spirit so far. Back in verse 3, we learned that we have been blessed in Christ with every Holy Spirit blessing, every spiritual blessing, every Holy Spirit blessing in the heavenly places. We already have those. 
And then in verse 13, we read that we have already been, if we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have already been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we have every Holy Spirit blessing in the heavenly places. We have been sealed with the Spirit. And yet, even though those things are true, what is Paul praying here? That God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would give us the Spirit. Now, someone might say, well, don't we already have the Spirit? Absolutely. But what is Paul indicating here? We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit in an ongoing way. And and the petition here is that God would, in an ongoing way, give us the Holy Spirit. And why? He wants us to have the Holy Spirit constantly so that we can know God and have an understanding that is enlightened. The spirit of wisdom, revelation in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. So what's the what's the idea here? The only way we can know God is if God reveals himself to us. God is God is knowable, but he is inaccessible to us because of sin. Our eyes have been blinded. And so if we are to understand the gospel, if we are to believe in Jesus in the first place, we need for the the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to open our eyes. And and some of you who did not grow up in in Christian settings have had that experience from from stark, absolute darkness to light, as if if a switch were were, were thrown. You you, you understand what this means in a very dramatic fashion. You, You understand what it means to go from darkness to light. All of a sudden, you understood the gospel and you found yourself believing it. I, I had something of that experience. It wasn't just one day, but it was over a period of weeks and months of, of this book that I had tried to read as a youngster, and it was opaque to me. It was, it was boring to me. It, it held nothing particular for me. I tried to read it, but it wasn't my book. And so I laid it aside, and then years later came back and heard this, this book being explained carefully in, in sermons, and all of a sudden it, it started making sense. What, what was the difference? Was I more intelligent? Was I more spiritual? Was I more whatever? No, it wasn't I. It was that, that the, the Holy Spirit had taken off the blinders and I saw. And, and I had that experience of the man in, in, in John. I, I once was blind, but now I see. So we need that in order to come to Christ. We cannot come to Christ in our own understanding. We need to be given that. But, but not only that, The context here is Paul is praying for Christians. He's praying for Christians that we would have the Holy Spirit, that God would give us his spirit so that our understanding might grow and grow and grow. So we need the Holy Spirit not only in our coming to Christ, we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds constantly whenever we open this book, whenever we hear it read, whenever we hear it explained and preached. Our attitude as Christians ought to be, Oh, Holy Spirit, give me understanding so that I can understand this word that you yourself have inspired. That's the prayer here. Now, um, we, uh, we find here that Paul has just told us of the amazing benefits we have. Verses 3 to 14. But if you're like me, you read over those and you're saying, I think I'm getting this. But I think there's a lot more here that I'm not quite getting. 
And, and you can read over verses 3 to 14 and, and still puzzle. Is, is, is he really saying that? Is, 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 is the blessing that he's giving us that lavish? Is it that extraordinary? I really want to get this. I really want to understand this. Well, we need help to do that. We need help to do that. We need our, our minds to be open. We, we uh, talk about colloquially, we talk about, oh, that blew my mind. Right. And there's this there's this hand signal now that people use. I find especially young people, they go. And they there's also an emoji, right? There's an emoji with, uh, uh, you know, when you're if you use those when you're texting, you know, and it's it's the top of the, it's the, the you know, the cartoon caricature of the face and then the, the head, the top of the head's blowing off like I just got it. That's sort of violent, doesn't it? Like you're losing your brains. But but this is this. The idea is the idea is I just it just dawned on me. I got it. I understood. And this is an amazing, astounding idea. And it just I just grasped it. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to do that for us. And there are three things. He prayed for three things here. And here's the content of his prayer Um, in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Here they are. Three things. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Now, did you notice that these get more and more elaborate? The three petitions there, the hope of your calling, the inheritance that is stored up for you if you are a holy one, a saint, a, a called one by God, and the surpassing greatness of his power according to the working of the might of his strength. Do you notice that as he goes on, he's warming to the subject and he's, he's working up to this, especially this third one here, the power. So the hope of his calling, the gloriousness of the inheritance and, and the, the exceeding greatness of the power the power toward us who believe. And then he launches into that third one and the rest of this section. And in some ways, going into chapter two as well, is all about that third one. And this is the one he's focusing on, the power. But let's think about these quickly. The hope of his calling. Well, calling goes back to the beginning when he called us out. But he called us out with a hope. And what is that hope that he gave us at the very beginning? So this hope of his calling, calling looks back, hope looks forward. So he's saying, when you were called, what was that hope that he gave you? I want you to understand that. And you need the Holy Spirit to understand that the hope to which he's called you. The inheritance. We've already seen that word uh, here in, in verses 3 to, to 14. The, the inheritance of the saints. What is it that God has laid up for us? How great, how rich is the inheritance that he has for us? Well, you need the Holy Spirit to grasp something of the greatness and the richness of of the glory of his inheritance and the surpassing greatness of his power. Look at these look at these synonyms that he piles up near here. Greatness of power, working, might, strength. He's pulling out all the synonyms here to to emphasize the how greatly powerful this power is. Now, um, the uh, the third aspect he focuses in on this this power. And he says here that um, it's the same power. So hold on to your seats here. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that's work in you. 
See why you need the Holy Spirit for this? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Uh, Verse 19, the greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the kind of power that God is working in us. And and that's, I, I don't know how you rank powers of God. You know, which is which is harder, if you will, uh, to to call the universe into existence out of nothing or to raise a dead man. I, I don't want to get into ranking powers, but but if you look at the ministry of Jesus, we can sort of rank. You know, it, it's amazing to heal a leper. That's astounding. It, it's remarkable to feed 5000 with just a, a few loaves and fishes. But but what about death? And what about that last enemy? What about that most fearful of our enemies? What about that that invader to our to our existence that 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 causes us to live in fear uh, throughout all of our lives if we we know not any power over it? What is that what is that thing that stalks us throughout our entire lives from the times we're born? What about what about that? That's the great enemy. And that's the great enemy that God conquered by raising Jesus from the dead. And not only that seated him at his right hand. And then, once again, he, he piles up. He piles up images. But this, this language, this seated him at his right hand. Uh, earlier in the service, uh, we read Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord of David, the Lord of David said to, uh, no, the Lord said, I'm sorry, the Lord said to David's Lord. This gets a little complicated, but the Lord God said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's the language we have here. And we find out who that Lord of David was. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now, we've already seen this heavenly places. That's where we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the realms in which spiritual beings and forces operate. And then he goes on and names some of those. Verse 21. Who, who lives in the, in, the, in the heavenly places? Who, who operates in those realms? Well, he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. So he kind of, he names different categories here, piling up synonymous or similar expressions. And then he kind of says, and everyone else who might be named. Anyone else who happens to operate in those realms, whatever his name might be, what's his name, whatever his name might be, who operates in those realms, he's over him. He has put all of them under his feet. He, he raised him from the dead. He seated him at the right hand of God, the place of power in the heavenly realms, far above all of these dominions and authorities and princes and kings and, and angels and demons, whatever they might be called, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now let's, let's talk about these ages. What are these ages? This age and the age to come. What are those ages? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, there was this idea, and you get to the time of Jesus, there's this idea, a very simple idea. There is the that age, the present age, the existing age, and then the Messiah comes, and he inaugurates the age to come. So there's this age, and there's the age to come. Messiah comes, and he's the dividing line between the two. But then we find in the New Testament, it gets a little more complicated. 
the Messiah comes and inaugurates the kingdom. He starts the, the takeover, uh, extending the kingdom throughout the world, but it's, it's, not, it's not finished yet. The operation is not done yet. There is, there is still an open invitation for, for those to come in, and he's coming again. And so the kind of the surprise is that he's come and he's coming again. So what's that mean? That means that we're living in an overlap time. The present age is still here, but it's passing away. Why is it passing away? Because God has raised Jesus to his right hand and placed him over all authority. And so this, this present age, it's going down. It is, it is, it is doomed to perish. And the, the, the age to come has broken in already. And the age to come is, is growing and taking more and more uh, authority over, over this world. And so we're in this overlap time. But it, 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 it doesn't matter in which time we are. We're in the overlap. But it says here that he's, he's far above rule, authority, power, dominion. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And we're in the overlap of the two. And he rules now and over the age and the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet. And here, once again, we have a reference to a psalm. He's put all things under his feet. If you go back to Psalm 8, verse 6, here the psalmist is doing what we sometimes do. He's looking at the heavens on a clear night. And he says, I'm a, I'm a little tiny spot. I'm a, a tiny, insignificant part of this universe. And why, God, do you think about me? That's what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Have you had that experience? You're contemplating the heavens and you say, I always think I'm so important and big and strong. And then I look at the heavens and I, I realize I'm a little speck in this universe. And God, you care for, for me and for people like me. And then he, he reflects and says, yet you have made him, that is humans, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings, the gods, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And that's what he's saying here, that Jesus is stepping into that position as man. And God is putting all things under his feet. This is a very rich illusion here, isn't it? Because all things should have been under whose feet at the beginning? Under Adam's and Eve's. That's what God said. I'm putting you in charge. You are my image. You are in control. You have dominion. You take control of it all. You reign over it. And what happened? They went back to dust. The humans that were supposed to reign over creation were absorbed back into it, were dominated by it. So the, the, the first man failed in his dominion task. And we find out here that Jesus is placed in that, that role as, as man, as representative man, as Adam. And what does Adam mean? Adam means man. And so we have Jesus here. And he's put in control and all things are placed under his feet. You see, first he talked about the beings, the, the rulers and the authorities and the powers. And now he gets even more general. Verse 22. And he put... All things, whatever they might be called, whatever they are, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This is a remarkable expression. That the one who is over all 
God has given him to the church. He's he's the gift to the church. And he is given to be the head of the church. Now think about how convenient this is for us. Um, He has taken the head of all things and he has given us the head, that head of all things, to be our head as well. That's very convenient for the church, isn't it? Wonderful. That, That the head of all things is the head of the church. We could have perhaps had a lesser being over the church, but no, we have the head of all things. When people ask me, well, who's the who's the head of your church? What's well, a really easy answer? Jesus. And he's the head of all things. And he's the head of our church. Isn't that amazing? Now, now here, different than in some other letters, here when he refers to church, he, he seems to be referring to universal church. Believers, baptized believers, wherever they might be, are in, in one body. A universal body over which Jesus is the head. And here, Paul, it looks like he may have invented this, this idea, this language of the, the church being the body of Christ. And here it's, it's, it's used again, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this, um, this, this last expression, there are at least six different ways to translate it, maybe more. And there is an endless supply of of discussion about what this means, Um, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And and the question is, who's doing the filling? Who's being filled? And uh, lots of different possibilities, but I'll just cut to the chase. Um, the, The likely meaning is this. The likely meaning is that the church is the fullness of Christ here on earth. Where do, you, where do you want to find Christ on earth? Where are you going to look for him? Where is he? Where will you find him in fullest measure? Well, you will find him in the church. And think about the, the head body imagery. What does our brain do, as it were? It fills the whole body, doesn't it? Because the rest of the body responds to what? The, the brain. So, so the head fills the whole body with its will and with its work. And that, that seems to be the image here. So, so the church is the fullness of Christ, and Christ is the fullness of God. So he is the, the full one because in him the fullness of deity dwells, the fullness of God dwells, and then Christ makes the church his fullness on earth. So this, this answers the question. Somebody says, I want to find God. I want to find God. Well, where would you look for him? Where might you find him on this earth? Well, you could contemplate the heavens and you will find something of God. The Bible says that. You will, you will see some of his, his eternal attributes in the heavens. But if you want a deeper knowledge, a more specific knowledge, where will you find God? Well, you will find him in Christ. And where will you find Christ on this earth? You will find Christ in the church, which is his body which he fills up with his presence. This, this, um, is, this interpretation, I think, is, is borne out by Colossians. It, it looks like he wrote Colossians and Ephesians about the same time. And if you go to Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 9, it says this, For in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity, that is godness, godhood, dwells bodily. So, so where do you find the fullness of God 
on earth. Well, you find it in Jesus. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, you all, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the fullness of God is in Jesus and the fullness of Jesus is in the church. Now, if all of this sounds beyond our ability to grasp, anybody with me in that? Then we need the Holy Spirit to illumine the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the hope of his calling, the glorious richness of his inheritance and the great power that he exercises in us who believe. So let me pray. For this reason, because I know of the faith in the Lord Jesus of the members of Florida Coast Church and their love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for them, remembering them in my prayers, that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And you put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen.